Coming up on episode 62 of the Up Full Life podcast. Jay Dilla. There's a bright chord and then there's a not so bright chord and then there's a brightness and a beautiful beauty and then there's a little sadness. And so there's there's always this sort of tinge of melancholy in what he does. Um, and that has to do with his spirit as a human being. Um, it's something that we, we, we connect with. And then the story, right? Um, which part of it is not myth, right? He did get sick too young. He did die too young, tragically. He did work until the very end, you know? That's all real. That's not myth. That's, um, that's the kind of thing that, um, I don't know, spiritual disciplines are built on. Isn't, isn't James in many ways a role model for us? We're all facing death at some point, but how do we face it, especially as artists? What's the purpose of making art if we're going to die? Right. James didn't, uh, uh, James didn't rationalize it. He's like, oh, well, fuck it. What's, what's the use? I'll never get a number one record now. He didn't think like that. He was the art. Indeedy, welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 62, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. What up, though? We about to rep Modi, then 12 M&M's. So grateful you are tuning in. Yes, indeedy. And we're back. Episode number 62, the Up for Life podcast. And it, it does arrive a couple weeks late. But fam, I got a good excuse. Your boy went and got hitched. 
1111.22 at the Spirit of Swanee Music Park in Live Oak, Florida. Uh, Alicia and I finally did the thing after a four-year engagement and a couple false starts due to the pandemic. So we were actually in Florida for a full month, did Halloween, set up the wedding, almost had to cancel because of a hurricane, but it actually went off pretty perfectly. So shout out to everybody who's showed love since we, uh, you know, got married. And almost immediately, the following weekend, we hopped in the whip from uh, near Tallahassee, Florida, where we were staying and went to Mobile, Alabama, and then New Orleans for two nights of lettuce funk, kind of like a little mini moon. And it was pretty awesome. Soul Kitchen in Mobile and the legendary Tipitina's Uptown in New Orleans. That was a phenomenal, quickie kind of rendezvous with friends and honeymoon suite and tips and NOLA food. So give thanks. But before that, I had a pretty busy month uh, on the heels of the Leah song from Rising Appalachia podcast, episode 61. Thanks to everyone who tuned in, who showed love, who told a friend. It's been a really successful and well-received episode, Um, and I'm really proud of the musicology and cultural anthropology in episode 61, so check that out if you haven't already, and thanks to everyone who has, thanks to the folks that put up some new reviews. Yeah, speaking of, if you do have the time or are so inclined, please rate and or review the Up Full Life podcast. Apple Podcasts is the most effective, but really, whatever your podcast platform of choice, those reviews and those ratings go a long way to steering those algorithms in this direction, bringing us new listeners, new ears, new hearts, new minds, and we give thanks. So thank you for everybody who has rated and reviewed the Up Full Life podcast, and you can hit me up direct, send me an email, suggestions and constructive criticisms and feedback and just anything you want to share b.gets at upfullife.com send me an email i love to hear from the people i wanted to let y'all know that's how you can support the upful life podcast and if you're so inclined you can also donate there is a support button on upfullife.com you can just click that and send me a few bucks if you're feeling like doing so this holiday season Uh, I had a few pieces come out over the past month on Live for Live Music. Bonobo Live Band's rumored final tour came through the East Bay in Fox Theater, so hit that up. Also, field notes notes from the underground at Swanee Halloween. I uh, focused this year's coverage on the undercard because it was really strong. And I was really stoked on some of the smaller artists on the different stages and renegade sets, etc. So you can check that out. Field notes from the underground at Swanee Halloween. That's on Live for Live Music, as is my feature on those two lettuce shows in Mobile and NOLA. It's called Let Me Ride, Lettuce Raps Southeast Run in Mobile and New Orleans. And that just dropped on Live for Live Music. I also hinted at the last podcast... I did the liner notes and bio for the brand new Rising Appalachia album live from New Orleans at Preservation Hall. Just go to risingappalachia.com backslash about and check out uh, what I put down for the Siren Sisters, Rising Appalachia. Lastly, got my 
annual, I guess it's the sixth annual favorite records of the year feature coming on upfullife.com. It's not going to be out right when this pod drops, but probably third week of December. So I'll plug it again on the next episode. But yeah, look out for that. I really put a whole lot of blood, sweat, tears, ears, listening, note-taking, meticulous study all year long curating this feature and the accompanying playlist. I also appreciate folks that like to support that. So you can, of course, do so on upfullife.com. We're listening to Mr. Yancey, which is Lettuce's uh, first homage to the great James J. Dilla Yancey. Uh, Came out on the album Rage in 2008. This is a performance from Summer 21. Uh, The song is a living, breathing, mutating, transforming organism, much like the band themselves. And uh, yeah, there's going to be a whole lot of Jay Dilla talk coming at you on Up Full Life Podcast, episode 62. I'm your host, B. Getz, and it's time to introduce our special guest. indeed it's my honor and privilege and pleasure to welcome dan charnas to episode 62 of the up full life podcast now dan is the author of dilla time the life and afterlife of jay dilla the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm it dropped in february 2022 i got an advanced copy from the publisher so that i could do a story on live for live music Um, And I'm going to read a little bit from the introduction to my story and Dan's bio, which will lay the groundwork for the in-depth discussion you're about to hear. Sixteen years on from his tragic death due to a rare blood disorder at 32 years young, the late Jay Dilla still feels somewhat misunderstood. The Detroit hip-hop icon is celebrated for his pioneering production prowess and surreal, shape-shifting beats, but his personal story certainly lacked the definitive telling. Sure, there are numerous rappers, producers, musicians, writers, and tastemakers who breathlessly pledge their allegiance to the Church of Dilla. Yet in the mainstream, the zeitgeist, and in scholarly journals alike, the artist formerly known as JD remains an enigma more niche player 
than a household name. An exhaustive book released in February 2022, Dilla seeks to correct that course and tell the essential unabridged tale in all its revolutionary rhythmic glory. In just about a decade of musical output, Jay Dilla, born James DeWitt Yancey, was responsible for helping shape the sonic blueprint of several of the most iconic artists in hip-hop and R&B. His run of collaborations reads like a list of legends from modern-day black music. A Tribe Called Quest, D'Angelo, Erica Badu, De La Soul, The Roots, Busta Rhymes, Common, Bilal, The Far Side, Most Deaf, DJ Jazzy Jeff. The list, like the beats, go on and on. Now I'm going to hop over to Dan Charnas' bio, so you can hear a little bit about the man behind the books, and so much more. Dan Charnas is a best-selling author, award-winning music and business journalist, producer of records and television, and a professor. Recipient of the 2007 Pulitzer Fellowship for Arts Journalism, he's the author of four books, co-creator and executive producer of the VH1 TV series The Breaks, and is associate arts professor at the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at New York University. Charnas' latest book is Dilla Time, a New York Times bestseller. The product of four years of research and nearly 200 interviews, Dilla Time emerged from a course on Jay Dilla developed by Charnas at NYU in 2017. But its roots go back to Charnas' time in the record business. When he first made the trip to Detroit to work with JD, Dilla Time has been called one of the few hip-hop sagas to take the music as seriously as its maker by Publishers Weekly and a new gold standard for writing about music by Mojo Magazine. I'd have to co-sign both of those affirmations. Uh, for more information, stop by the Dilla Time site, www.dillatimebook.com. Dan's first book, The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip-Hop, dropped in 2010 and was called a classic of music business dirt digging as well as a kind of pulp epic by Rolling Stone. I'd have to co-sign that as well. It inspired the 2016 pilot for VH1's The Breaks. He's also an author of Work Clean, The Life-Changing Power of Mies and Place to Organize Your Life, Work, and Mind, dropping in 2016 and exploring what great chefs can teach the rest of us about their particular way of relating to time, space, motion, and resources. He's the co-author of Def Jam, the first 25 years of the last great record label with Bill Adler and Say Adams. In the early 90s, Dan was one of the first writers for The Source, becoming part of a generation of young writers who helped create hip-hop journalism, cover stories, features, reviews, and columns for a variety of publications on artists like LL Cool J, Ice Cube, A Tribe Called Quest, NWA, and Public Enemy. During this time, he also began his music business career in the mailroom of seminal rap label Profile Records and eventually becoming rap A&R and promotions manager. He worked with Run DMC, Dana Dane, Special Ed, Rob Bass, Special, says Special Ed twice, and DJ Quick. And then he was recruited by Def Jam founder Rick Rubin to run the rap department of his new Warner Brothers joint venture, American Recordings, where Charnas was VP of A&R. Oversaw projects like Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back 
and DJ Cool's Gold Anthem, Let Me Clear My Throat. Also worked with Chino XL. Master's degree from Columbia University, Graduate School of Journalism. He's born in NYC, lives there with his wife, the poet and essayist Wendy S. Walters, and their son. Awesome bio, Dan. And uh, really tells the tale. You're about to hear me and Dan Charnas chop it up about all things Dilla time. I really wanted to talk to him about his whole career, but we'd need like uh, Quest Love Supreme, Jimmy Jam, seven hour session for that. But he did promise to come back, which you'll hear at the end. Um, but it was a it was an absolute education and meditation and and rewarding free exchange of ideas with the great Dan Charnas. And you're about to hear it. I've listened to him on close to two dozen podcasts in preparation for this. And just because I'm interested in what this guy's got to say about Dilla, about music, about life. Fantastic storyteller. So with that. I'll cue it up. You're hearing Stakes is High Instrumental, which is Dilla's production for De La Soul from the album of the same name in 96. On the short list for my favorite Dilla beats and rap songs of all time. And that's how I'm going to bring in the great Dan Charnas. On episode 62 of the Up For Life podcast, I'm your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy. Long-awaited opportunity that I'm super grateful for this morning. Uh, I have the the privilege and pleasure and honor of speaking with uh, Dan Charnas, who's an author. He's a professor at the NYU Tisch School of the Arts. Um, they call him Shorty Long St- Sketch. And uh, he's somebody who I've admired for a long time, going back to the big payback. Uh, his book, Before Dilla Time, recently, last February, put out Dilla Time. Uh, which is such an amazing piece of work. I've been through it a couple of times. I've bought it as a gift for a couple friends. Uh, I tried to do this podcast a year ago, but Dan is a busy man. He's got a lot of irons in the fire. So uh, I'm so grateful. I've listened to so many podcasts with you and they are so insightful that uh, it is really, truly an honor. So that's my introduction. Welcome to the Upful Life podcast, Professor Dan Charnas. Well, thank you for having me. And you know, uh, we can't talk about uh, the nickname Shorty Long Sketch without explaining how it came to be. I mean, and that will probably make this, I think, the most unique podcast appearance of mine, uh, period. Uh, yeah, man. Yeah, you, you remember that uh, that MTV show, The Lyricist Lounge Show? Sure. So that was my first comedy writing gig. Uh, it was like around the year 2000. And what was really interesting is that you know, we had a lot of hip-hop celebrity guests come through, including Most Def and Common and Erica, all in the same month. And this was right in the middle of, you know, their, you know, their their finest work with the with and as the Soulquarians. So, uh, you know, I was I was very green in the writers' room, and um, <laughs> I ended up writing sketches that like just went on and on and on i had no sense of you know really innate sense of how long 
these things should be. And I mean, that's all about rhythm, right? Rhythm and timing. And so I was in my first, uh, you know, reading, you know, table read, where you sort of read the sketches through. And the, um, the executive producer of the show, Jim Biederman, God bless him, you know, he said in the, in the full room of comedy writers and actors, including Tracy Ellis Ross, by the way, said, uh, you know the, the delete button on your keyboard? <laughs> Use it. <laughs> and so the next table read, you know, I was mortified. And so I went to Jim and I apologized for writing sketches that were too long. And he said, no, no, listen, it's a good sketch. It's just too long, right? Um, so I learned a little bit for the next table read, but it was already too late because Hugh Moore... Uh, an incredible comedian, one of my colleagues uh, on that show, he comes in. <laughs> I walk into the room and he looks up and he goes, oh, shorty long sketch. Big peals of laughter. And that just became, you know, I, I actually wear it proudly now because everything I do, I do a little a little bit lengthily, whether it's, you know, <clears throat> the big payback or dilettante. Everything's just a little too long, but I've learned to make peace with myself about it. So yeah, I am. I am shorty long sketch. I love it, and I love it in more ways than one because I too am long winded, and you know, in my writing and work and Megillah spinning and all of it, I seem to go a little long. Um, I'm a big fan of long form journalism and long form podcasting. So in a lot of ways, you're like a north star. You you show us that it's possible if the work is thorough, and it's it's salient and topical and engaging that. You can keep an audience because, you know, you, I mean, you've got the receipts. You know, you got the 800 plus pages, big payback, 400 plus pages, Dilatime, both, you know, lauded uh, in their respective arenas of music journalism. And, and like I said, uh, when I when I see somebody like yourself who make a career out of long form in a era of such short attention spans and TikTok and Twitter and it's it's inspiring. So you know, for all the Thank teasing you. you you endured, know that uh, you inspired a number of us at the same time. Oh man, that's that's great. I mean, that means a lot to me. And um, yeah, I figure you know why why let Robert Caro have all the fun? <laughs> um, we can write long books too. And yeah, you know, listen. One of my favorite reviews of Dilla Time, at least when I say favorite, I mean. I thought it was well considered and well written. Um, was shot Sasha Fair Jones' review of Dilla Time, but he also critiqued it. He said, "You know, it's a it's a four hundred page book that would have a good four hundred page book that would have really made a great two hundred and forty one page book." And I'm like, you know what? Um, it's if I hadn't have made it the length it was, that would mean that the stories a lot of, of a lot of folks who many people would consider ancillary to Dilla's life would not be in there. I wouldn't be able to talk about T3 and Dez and Head and all those folks who played key roles in his life. And I, I also think the reception from the people who matter, right, you know, those folks uh, would have been very different. Um, so, you know, I... I, I no regrets. No yeah. regrets. It needed, to, it needed to be the length that it was. 
I concur. Shorty Long sketch rides again. <laughs> I love it. And I concur. And I think that there's a difference. Like, uh, depends on the reader and the level of interest. And if somebody, if it's just another topical book that they're uh, about uh, music or a producer, or they want to check in with the myth or the legacy of Dilla, then sure, 241 pages would be sufficient. But uh, I find that the reason that this resonated so deeply for me and for a number of people I've spoken to, listened to, et cetera, is the depth, is how it is the definitive work where you did talk to all the homies and you did get three sides to every story and you did, you know, warts and all, even some of the stuff people didn't want to say out loud, like all that stuff is important to the totality of, of James. And as somebody who is an, whatever, amateur musicologist, music journalist like myself who loves hip hop, who loves the cultural anthropology of hip hop and especially of this kind of hip hop and this mm -hmm. methodology. Um, you took us there all the way in. And, and that to me makes the length and the time worth it. I'm a guy who listened to the audio book, which by the way, I love that you read the audio book because you didn't read the big payback on the audio book. They wouldn't let me, yo. They, <laughs> they, they sold, literally, I had actually the option in the contract to do it and they sold it out from under me. And if I had said no, they would have probably scotched the deal and I didn't want to get on the bad side of my publisher at that point. But that really sucked because dude pronounced Rakim as Rakim. Yeah. At least so I hear. I couldn't listen to it. I couldn't listen to it. So I'm yeah, sure. since then, uh, you know, I... I, I have I have to read it. Yeah. And I just loved that you read it to us. It's just, you know, without, I don't want to bow down too far in the first 15 minutes of the interview, but just hearing you, you could hear the the sort of passion and the depth of your study in your delivery. And and then to be able to kind of toggle between the hard copy and then the, the audio book just made for a really engrossing, enveloping experience. And given where we were as a culture, community, at the time, it was like manna from heaven, just to be able Crazy. to kind of turn off the world and sink into this this man, this creator, this artist that we so revere. And and that's kind of where I want to take it from the top with regard to the project with you. I mean, this is both the my process of reading the book a couple of times and listening to your pods and, and loving and and consuming deal of music and art and story. But also a lot of my listeners are not thumb on the pulse. So I also have to do some hand-holding and some real basic B stuff also. Um, sure. That's going to be an interesting dalliance. But I, I heard you uh, talking about the impulse for writing the book, being uh, the lost mechanics, that people weren't really discussing the mechanics of music so much. It was more storytelling and romance and sort of the legacy myth-making stuff and less nuts and bolts. And, and yeah. you come from a unique place because you're not just writing about it. You've lived it. You've made beats. You've been in the lab with Dilla himself. You've yeah. been saddled up with Rick Rubin, uh, Deaf American Records. That puts you in a really unique uh, vantage point perspective to embark on such an ambitious thing. Can you talk a little bit about like the mission of writing about mechanics and then how your own lived experience informed that? Sure. Thanks, man. Um, I had just like lots of different people who I write about in the book, I had my own revelation about what Dilla was doing, right? Um, you know, the story I like to tell of going to Dilla's, 
basement to record a couple of songs with him in the middle of 99. You know, I'd come out there with uh, uh, my dear friend and at that time artist that I had signed, Chino XL, uh, to Detroit for the first time. And, you know, it was me kind of cajoling Chino to come out. I think Chino really liked JD. I just think I was sort of driving that thing. And it wasn't just like, hey, let's get JD to do some beats. It was let's go to Detroit, which is weird. It was a weird choice. I don't know why I wanted to do that. But, you know, I think it makes sense now from a historical perspective, like looking back on the allure that he has. People came, Erica came to Detroit. Ain't no reason for Erica to go to Detroit, right? Uh, you could just get a real scent from JD. Um because he didn't like to travel. So anyway, we get there. We go to the basement. And Chino puts his arm around me. And motions, like points to Dilla. Points to me and says, you know, this guy. You know, he's the guy who kind of got us out here. You know, he's your number one fan. And I figure like that's my opening. You know, to ask JD the question I'm burning to ask him. As myself being a producer and, and beat maker. And having beats on Chino's album. Um... And uh, I asked him, how do you get your bass tones? That's what I asked him. And before he could answer, Chino said, don't tell him. Because <laughs> that's the kind of relationship I had with Chino. The kiss and the slap. That, right. was, that was it. But that shows you where my head was at, right? Like, I wasn't even thinking about asking him about his rhythms. Because in reality, those were just starting to emerge. Meaning I knew that his rhythms were loose and 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 he had a particular kind of disposition towards groove, but uh the rushed snare had not appeared it was just had just appeared like in uh a beat tape that he had put out um because fantastic volume 2 had not come out officially yet so it it didn't dawn on me till i got back to la and we started mixing the album that oh the like there's something going on with these rhythms and by the time i really realized how pervasive those ideas had become with other producers and musicians, he was dead. Um, and so then as the stories begin to emerge of his importance, you know, uh, Dilla days and all this stuff, there's this thing that emerged about his beats that the magic or the, the means by which he did this was to not quantize, uh, which means to basically... Uh, 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 turn off the controls of the drum machine that fix any errant notes and fix them to sort of a, a, a more coarse time grid. And, you know, we all know, at least we, if we make beats, what unquantized, you know, beats sound like. It sounds like chaos. It sounds different in, you know, in, in every measure. Whereas Dilla's stuff had a sameness to it 
that snare was always early, right? right. Those hi-hats were definitely swung. Um, yeah, there were some things that were, you know, you could tell they were unquantized, like his bass lines. But there were other things that just like, no, no. And, and quant is not quantizing. Um, turning off autocorrect is just a technique. It doesn't describe what's actually happening sonically and rhythmically. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you're not quantizing, and I'm sorry if this is too technical for your your uh, your listeners, but um, I'll, tr- I'll try to make it as, as simple as I can. If you're turning off the autocorrect and you your finger hits a button on the drum machine, that that hit could come before the beat or it could come after the beat. This, it, it's no telling where it's going to be, but Dilla's always came in a certain place, which signified to me, number one, that it was intentional, not errant. <clears throat> and secondly, I knew how an MPC worked. And the thing about the MPC is that it had this really um, interesting swing and shift timing function that you had to quantize in order to use. And that was what was producing those shifts and the conflicts between things that were straight and things that were swung and things that were shifted. This is a long-winded, again, shorty, long sketch, long-winded way to answer your question. Your original question was, what was the motivation for writing the book? The answer is a growing anger at hearing Dilla's accomplishments reduced to, oh, he just turned off the quantized function. What a great feel he has. And, you know, people do this to artists and particularly black artists all the time. It's... It's uh, it's instinct, you know. It's this uh, animal intuition. Like it's not. Like it's, it's it's damn near fucking racist, right? Yeah. Like yo, he was a scientist. He was a programmer. Yes, he had good feeling and intuition and all that stuff. But that's only half the story. He had a beautiful mind, a beautiful mind, and he really uh wanted it to sound the way it sounded and he was going for something and as t3 said you know he didn't give everybody all of the secrets he gave a little to this person here and a little of that person here but if you talk to enough people there's affirmation of that intention interesting thing about the book now being out is the persistence of myth right 
you know, I'm teaching another round of the Dilla course right now at NYU, and I assigned my students, I asked them to download Koala, which is the closest thing we have to like an SB1200 for your iPhone or iPad, <laughs> um, and to make a beat in the Dilla fashion. And some of them were like, oh, it's so hard, because, you know, they're used to using their computer digital audio workstations and not doing things like you would, you know, old fashioned, like Koala <laughs> approximates. And they, you know, a few of them were complaining, oh, it's, it's really hard to do this without quantization. It's really hard to do this in the Dilla style. It's really hard to do finger drumming. Like, yo, I, I had to sit them down yesterday in class. Like, that is not Dilla. Dilla didn't finger drum. He didn't, like, this wasn't real-time programming. Dilla used quantization on certain elements. Like, use it. It's okay. It's that deep, right? People uh, really, it's, it, it, and I think it's just because it's so pervasive and also people just don't know how drum machines work. Even people who know what an MPC is, they don't know how it works. So, yeah, anger. <laughs> you can hear it. It's still oozing out of my pores. Righteous indignation. I, I understand yeah. it, but yeah. and I also admire the integrity um, that you had that that or that you have in approaching the project because um, you know that your life uh, if you didn't correct this myth I mean it would just be between your ears but the, the rest of the world would go on I, I don't know that anybody else was in a position to undertake this and and understand like you just broke down I mean you didn't just break it down how he made the beats you did the whole history of drum machines got with Roger Lynn explaining the evolution of the sample time and how the technology advanced. And then where James stroke of brilliance comes in between these uh, in advancements. And then what he was able to do, which is like no manual, no, like a how to just this sort of boy genius, like with this new tech where there's no, uh, you know, very little that's come before him that can sort of pave the way. Sure, Pete Rock and Q-Tip and Marley Marlick were making beats and sampling, but what James was doing and what set him above was really the the micro conflicts and the rhythms and stuff that you were able to break down in a language that the layperson can understand, yet is so technical and so thorough that musicologists and beat makers. I had a conversation with DJ Harrison at the Blue Note Jazz Fest Napa about wow. how he received your work. You know, like... Really? Yeah. Like, I'm telling you, it's... it's We talk about it. I don't want to gas your head. But you, we dude, talk no, the, the very first interview, official interview that I did for the book, like when I like sat down to start cataloging and, you know, getting stuff on tape, um was with my friend DJ Brainchild, Bill Johnson, uh, from OK Indiana. Player, yeah. And, OK Player. And uh, I, I asked, you know, who's caring on the legacy in your mind? The first person he mentioned was DJ Harrison. This is when I started following him and listening to his music. So to hear that he, you know, received the book well, man, it's just, it's the great, it's the greatest. It's the greatest feeling. It's, it's you know, it's great. Thank you.
love to hear that brainchild check DJ first. I, I love everything B- DJ touches, this Butcher Brown band, his solo stuff on Stone's Throw. Yeah, he's definitely carrying the torch, not just the Dilla torch, but just like progressive sample based live, all the elements, you know, vintage synths, new drum machines, all of it. He's he's a wizard, but I could go off on a tangent there. Um, I wanted to kind of follow on with what you were saying with regard to the myth uh, and sort of like undoing stuff that people think you you said you made a spiritual argument for James and a musical argument. I think that you just kind of broke down the musical argument of like why it was important for you to tell the story. But what is the spiritual argument with regard to your writing the book? What Can you explain what you mean by spiritual just so I can answer the right question? I guess I was listening to you talk. You were saying about wanting to remedy his own obscurity in the face of musicologists trying to now, now that the music's out and the DJ Harrison's and hiatus coyotes of the world are employing these methods and they're trying to name them and discuss them. And, and you wanted to basically make a musical argument, but yeah, the flip side to that was the, the legacy that the, the, there's no Dr. Dre days, Marley Marl days. There's no Pete rock days, but there are Dilla days. What is the spiritual or religious or sort of deification side of Dilla right. that sounded like you kind of wanted to somewhat undo instead of add to? Okay, I understand. And just just for the record, to correct the historic record, there is a Dre day, but it's a song. <laughs> right. Um, That's true. So, yeah, there is the, I think in the intro to the book I talk about, there is the science of Dilla and then there's sort of the religion of Dilla. Yeah. And I think that I did lean the book towards deconstructing the science of Dilla. And that also means deconstructing not just the music, but deconstructing the man. Meaning that it's not just going to be the book of St. James, right, Uh, about this sainted dude um, where we're just listening to, you know, his mother's sometimes adoring stories and i i don't mean that to to denigrate Maureen's stories at all because Maureen also gives the real right she is uh in many ways you know um you know she she tells some things about her son that you know don't always make her son look good but it's they're true so it, it was in that spirit you know that i also wanted to okay you know let's see what his relationships were like um, with women, with his daughters. Uh, let's see what his relationship with his friends were like. Uh, you know, there's a narrative about him and Frank. And, um, you know, Frank, you could not, you could not have a better friend than Frank. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? In yeah. life, we should all have somebody who is that, uh, you know, the, the homie like that. Uh, but, you know, James did not always reciprocate. And Frank, you know, gradually came to understand that there were things that he needed to do for himself that Dilla couldn't and wouldn't do and that the friendship needed to change a little bit. You know, the nature of the connection needed to change a little bit. So all that stuff I also consider to be the science of Dilla. Um, But there is a religiosity to Dilla and I think the book spends a little less time on that 
um, deconstructing that. But there are hints in there about that. I mean, I think there is a mythology that surrounds his mother, um, you know, that she was sort of uh, anointed or ordained by us as the mother of that religion. Um, and that that comes, I think, from our patriarchal impulse, right? Which is, we love the mother. We love the mother, you know? Sometimes we don't care about the kids, but we love the mother, right? Um, that's patriarchy. Uh, and we should love the mother, um, but we should also love the kids. So uh, there's that part of it. Um, there is, uh, you know... Um, I think Jason Moran gets to it a little bit and Arthur Jaffa get, gets to it a little bit about what it is, what is it that makes us so enthralled by Dilla. Jaffa talks about it in terms of looking at a hand-cranked silent movie that moves according to a kind of a non-linear human uh, reflexive time and that's sort of very fascinating to us and that's one of the things that really captivates us when listening to Dilla's rhythms. Um, Jason Moran talked about every generation having its own kind of syncopation that goes along with, you know, the, the zeitgeist of that generation. And there's something about Dilla's rhythms, uh, the sort of clash between uh, time feels, the being in the in-betweenness of everything, uh, it's just another way to, uh, it's another kind of defiance and another kind of joy. Um, and defiance and joy are the things that mark black art all through, you know, the the 19th and 20th and now 21st century. Um, there is also this harmonic thing that uh, captivates us about Dilla. And I, I try to get out a little bit. He cycles from sort of these bright chords to these very brooding uh, chords. Uh, and you can hear it even in songs like um, uh, rock music, Fourth and Back, off of Fantastic Volume 1. Rock to the rhythm, fourth and back, fourth and back, fourth and back, 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 Just rock to the rhythm. Fourth and back, fourth and back, fourth and back, 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 Don't make no sense. You ain't gotta grab the microphone to pay your rent. It's too many so-called MCs rapping. Put this down, you can't make it happen. Continue. There's a bright chord, and then there's a not so bright chord, and then there's a brightness and a beautiful beauty, and then there's a little sadness, and so there's. There's always this sort of tinge of melancholy in what he does. Um, and that has to do with his spirit as a human being. Um, it's something that we, we, we connect with. And then the story, right? Um, which part of it is not myth, right? He did get sick too young. He did die too young, tragically. He did work until the very end. You know, that's all real. That's not myth. That's, um, that's the kind of thing that um, 
I don't know, spiritual disciplines are built on. Isn't, isn't James in many ways a role model for us? We're all facing death at some point, but how do we face it, especially as artists? What's the purpose of making art if we're going to die? Right. James didn't, uh, uh, James didn't rationalize it. He's like, oh, well, fuck it. What's, what's the use? I'll never get a number one record now. He didn't think like that. He was the art. So I think that's very inspiring to us too. Again, another super long-winded uh, answer, shorty long sketch answer to a very simple question, but I hope that answers it. most amazing parts of Dilettime for me as a reader was the fact that you you filled us with his his life, his relationships, the history of Detroit and his own family and all these sort of uh, opportunities that came along the way, good relationships, bad relationships, the MCA situation that he, quote, pissed away, all that to and he might have even been misdiagnosed, as you saliently mentioned yeah. later in the book. But yeah. we are in his head and in himself when he's getting sick. And the way that you're able to actually, like, put us alongside him for those last few years of his life, whether it was, like, the trip to Brazil or the way he was feted and celebrated in Los Angeles after, you know, kind of, you know, being ignored in Detroit for the lion's share of, of his time. Like, all that stuff there was like an emotional quotient to it that I felt in a really like deep way because you had so thoroughly told the story up until that point that I personally, even though I, I've loved Dill's music since his, I mean, I kind of got hip around the soul quarians, but I, you know, we're talking two decades now, but I never really understood the circumstances and, and what was what around the, time of his passing and even in getting sick because it was very closely guarded then it was not uh social media pictures everywhere somebody went you know you i got most of my info from the lesson you know you mentioned brainchild like i'm a lurker of okay player since the beginning and i wow. went to i went to the lesson university i mean so much of what i know and what i love about music and life even in culture and just the type of like stuff I learned just lurking in GD, like uh, racial stuff and and different cultures and communications. I, I got shout out OK Player because so much of yeah. of my uh, education outside the lines took place on those boards. So, yeah. But I, so I can remember this happening in real time, Dylan getting sick and, and the sort of rumors and whisper mill and all that kind of stuff that was going on on the boards then. And, and the, my frame of reference for that whole era is tied to what I learned there. So yeah. you systematically corrected so much of the misinformation or rumors and stuff associated with that and did it with grace and, and integrity. And like you brought up a lot of the stuff with you know, earlier with Ma Dukes and of course um, the, the sort of way she's been anointed and, and, and she let you in all the way, which sounds like that's not the norm for 
people that are not in the inner circle. Like you were able to speak not just to her, but to the other parties and the stories and the 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 tales didn't always line up. And there was uh, different fa you know, alternative facts in some situations or people's reflections were colored one way versus another. And and I was really blown away by how you were able to navigate that with the relationships with his peers, with his partners, with his mother, with house shoes, with Egon, like really hairy, difficult topography. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. I mean, you're 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 very very kind, and I I really appreciate your your comments and your close read. Um, I will say that that was a chance. Number one, like. Figuring out what the timeline was and what was going on when was a challenge. And just to show you how much of a challenge it was, there was a point less than a week before I had to turn the manuscript in. I'm in Detroit at my, you know, shuttling between my mother-in-law's place and uh, an Airbnb that my wife and I rented just so we could have a place to write because she was working on her stuff too. And um, I was doing an email exchange with Martha Yancey, um, James' sister. And Martha um, sent me a timeline of when he got sick. And it was all, was like the months were correct, but the year was one year earlier than I had put it. She had put it all in 2002. And I had him getting sick in 2003. And... Maureen had also put it in 2002 uh, in, in a couple of different places. So I, I was in a panic like that last, for one evening, I was like, am I going to have to tear this chapter apart? Um, am I going to miss my deadline? But then I really started going through, like part of it was like sort of trusting all my sources and I eventually worked it out with Martha that it was 2003, that for whatever reason, she had got it into her head that it was 2002 because she had been listening to her mother say it was 2002. So then it became 2002, like that, right? But Martha knew because she got married in 2003 and he got sick just before she got married. So stuff like that, like... Yeah. Oh my, when did he get sick? And I was double checking everything. I was calling Joylette. Hey, do you remember James being sick at all when you were together? And he said, no, no, not at all, right? Because that would have meant he was sick right when his daughter, you know, when he was living with his daughter. And it just, there was no, there was no backup for that. Um, right. All the evidence pointed to, you know, he was, he got sick in January of 2003. But then I had to figure out what was correct about that? Like, you if you read some of the things that, um, the stories that have come out, you know, they talk about um, James went into the hospital in early 2003 and he was in there for months. I found out he couldn't have been there for months. Do you know who, you know who kind of fixed that for me? It's like, you never know who's going to fix it. Who fixed it was Zoe from... Uh, from the Foreign Exchange uh, Collective. Zoe's from Detroit. Zoe was in a studio with Slum Village on Valentine's Day, wow. 2003, when James, with a cane, stopped by the studio, which means he had to have been out of the hospital within two weeks. There's no other way, right? 
Uh, and then that was also confirmed by young RJ and T3 and going forward. So then when did he go into the hospital? He actually went into the hospital at least once in Detroit. I was never able to figure out if he spent any length of time like in a, as an inpatient in Detroit after that. I know he was on his two feet when he got to L.A. Um, and we finally figured out that he was sort of, he had one bout in the hospital that began in late December 2004. Uh, or he may have had one like just before that. So I think like he, he went in, he may have gone in in like November or early December and then he was out. But then he went back in around New Year's. And this is according to not only Martha Yancey remembering some things, but also uh, Olivia, who was Common's assistant, remembering things. And she remembered, oh, it was rainy, right? And you know, it's hardly ever rainy in L.A. So I went to the weather almanac <laughs> to figure out when it, there was a rainstorm in L.A. And sure enough, I think it was December 28, 2004. So it had to have been then. Um, shit like that, dude. Like... That's the level that I had to try to get. And then I had to try and go, okay, when did he get out of the hospital? So if he went in on December 28th, when did he get out? I figured out that he had to be out by March 14th because he was in there for his birthday. But then he was out again and he was talking to, I think, Alvin Blanco um, of, uh, I think, was that the Scratch interview? I forget, but he was talking to somebody in that March, right? Um, and then I, I was talking to Tim Maynard around that time too as a journalist. And, you know, he had said that Dilla was out of the hospital. So all of that is to say that's what it took. And there was a lot of backtracking and second guessing. And, and even with all that, we have a clearer picture of the timeline, but not a window into the man's feelings and soul and that of course is the biggest loss not that James would have ever been forthcoming I think with anyone else but I do know that late in life he was calling people and letting them know that he loved them apologizing to people who he felt he had wronged Um, and you know it's that kind of thing like that really made me value what Joylette Hunter uh, had to say about Dilla in that time, because she was separated from Dilla. She was no longer his fiance. She was just the mother of his child, kind of living independently, watching James from afar in decline. And she said, you know, something to the effect of how scared he must have been, you know, how sad he must have been. And there were very few people who had that level of convo about it. Like, oh man, Dill's a fighter. He's such a trooper. He's this, he's that. Fight, 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 fight. Like, yo, man, he's, a, he's like a little boy inside. He's scared. He doesn't want to die. He's sad, you know? Who's ministering to that? That kind of thing, man. You know, uh, that's the stuff I'll never get. And, uh, you know, it's as an author... Um, you just have to try to be as empathetic as possible and um, use the facts 
to to guide your em- empathy in your writing. the first word that came to mind as you were navigating that right there was empathy and and yeah the little boy factor i mean I, you add in the whole like uh machismo aesthetic of tough guy hip-hop which we know james with the trucks and the blunts and the strip club he was already that guy so it wasn't in his nature to be vulnerable or to share fear or concern or you know even when he was fucking up with his money and his label and his studio and letting people down you never knew it right the way he just went about his his life like ain't no thing even when he got sick sounds like tried to ignore it for a time until he couldn't and and that his his gravestone says it's all good (laughs) wow that's crazy it says it all funny but but it's remarkable and it's not it's not funny it's really it's like uh, it's a source of grief for me. I'm um, sorry, I chuckled at it. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's. I mean, it. But it is. It's, it's laugh to keep from crying. You know, like. And look, maybe that the fact that he was so defended as a person was what allowed him to express his genius the way he did. If he was a therapy person, you know, disclosing his deepest feelings to everyone, maybe the music wouldn't be the way it is. And I'm not saying that we not do therapy and be right. not be well adjusted for the sake of art because I don't think art requires that. I just think that he was a person, he was who he was. Um and yet I also, you know, there's some people in history that you, you know, you wish you could give a hug to in some ways. Right. And uh man, you know, as much as people love James, um you know, I think he needed some more love, frankly. Yeah, I, I I get that, having read the book and and knowing a little bit more about the situation. Uh, it feels like, yeah, there was a, a lot of inner loneliness and sort of disconnect that not even, you know, lovers and partners could, could rectify or remedy or help heal. Um, yeah. I feel like we've been kind of he- on super heavy stuff uh, for a bit, and uh, I hope it, you know. I, this is all of great interest to me and, and Dillafiles, but I think for some folks, man, it's just like overwhelming to hear the sadness of this genius taken so soon, and then um, to come to know that his life was, you know, in disarray in a lot of ways. It hurts, and and there was a certain level of sadness that I also got from the book that I'm grateful for because, again, thinking that he was just all blunts and strip clubs and and beats and and good times until he died is not the case. And that's important to, to know the story. But one thing that I, uh, I wanted to kind of nail down with you with regard to the beats, um, 
I hear this story of Questlove. He's on tour with the far side around the time that Le Cabin came out and he's, he's leaving the venue and he hears a kick drum that sounds like it's in a, a, a clothes dryer and he bolts from the van and <laughs> runs into the venue. What the F is that? And it was like literally the first time that a Dilla kick pattern had graced his ears. And then that's 95 or 96. You placed the revolution in 98 as far as the conflict, the swing versus yep. straight, the quote unquote Dilla time. So what happens in 98 that is the sort of light years leap from just a, a obtuse kick pattern on on a far side track to what basically was Pandora's box for beat making for the next 20 years? Super great question. I wish more people asked this question, and I'm going to answer it in shorty long sketch fashion. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Listen, Dilla always wanted to mess with time. That was his thing, right? And it goes back to something that I really feel is his rosebud moment, as a Citizen Kane reference for all y'all. Um, you know, he. He and his family uh, watched a lot of movies at home on VCR, and one of the movies that they liked was part of that trilogy, the uh, the Sidney Poitier, Bill Cosby trilogy, Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again, and um, and then the last one, A Piece of the Action. Mavis Staples sang the song, the theme song for that movie. Curtis Mayfield wrote it and produced it. It's a pretty straight-ahead funk song. But at the end of the movie... The song comes back again, but uh, it's in a party scene. And so in post-production, they've added the sounds of claps, hand claps, except the claps themselves are kind of flaming, like they're not, they're very loose. And then they're coming in and out of sync with the song in ways that if you listen to it and you just, you squint as you listen, <laughs> you squint your ears and then eyes together, it's almost like hearing voodoo. It's like, oh, that's where that came from, right? So this scene in this movie was kind of like a holy grail for him. This, this feeling of rhythmic looseness. And he wanted that in his music, and yet he is making music on a machine, which 
if you program it, it's going to hew to a, a computer time grid. There were lots of ways that we tried to defeat that grid and inject human rhythms into our music in hip hop. The biggest one was the loop, right? Because you're not just importing sound, you're importing groove. That was what made Eric B and Rakim's I Know You Got Soul so revolutionary in 1987. finally hearing rapping over breaks like back in the days of the parks rather than you know the run dmc beatbox era you know that that shit sorry i just knocked over the microphone here so looping was one way to do it but then if you were going to chop drums you were back to square one because those drums had to be nailed to a grid so the first technique that he mastered was playing freehand, meaning turn on, turning off autocorrect for certain elements. That's technique number one. That's what he was. He came into our consciousness with. His first big productions were all like that. Uh, the far side, uh, running. The snare drum is quantized. The, hit, the hi-hat is quantized, but the kick drum is not, and it bounces all over the place. Um, there are uh, other songs like that, like Still Shining, Buster Rhymes, came out in 1996. You know, I'm going to give you more and more, right? And he's got the kick <laughs> drum going. It's it got the kick drum going crazy all over the place. But that was just the first technique. Then he started doing something else really interesting with his sounds. And this brings us to the second technique, which is deceleration, which he started almost from the very beginning. Like if uh, you hear the She Said remix, he's taking a Gatto Barbieri sample that's like, do, 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 do. And he slows it down and it's, dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun. When you take source material and you slow it down, 
the human imperfections actually elongate and reveal themselves. You can hear it in the beginning of Conant Gardens, the song Conant Gardens, where he takes that uh, tribute to West's song by Little Beaver and slows it way down. So the hi-hats, which is originally going, if you slow them down, they start swinging a little bit, like like a little lip to it. So that's the second technique, right? Deceleration. The third technique, which is the one that really carries the most severity, he begins using in late 97, early 1998. How do we know this? Because it's really, you can't hear it on stuff he did before a certain point. What caused this change? He stopped using the SB1200, which he had used from the beginning of the, you know, his career, essentially, and went back to the MPC. It was either an MPC-60 or an MPC-3000. I am actually not sure what. I think it was an MPC-3000. So he's back working on the thing that he originally trained on, except the MPC... See, the SP and the MPC were kind of like the Coke and Pepsi of hip-hop production for hip-hop producers. And the SP-1200, which was uh, made by EMU, emulated a lot of the innovations of the Lin drum company, one of which was swing, using one of which was quantization, right? Uh, and the other was swing. And on an SP, when you swung something, essentially all the notes for all the all the notes for all of the sounds would be essentially modified. Like each each alternate eighth note would be um, delayed by a certain amount, creating an uneven rhythm. And on an SP, the swing was global. So in other words, you 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 swung it, and everything would swing. The kick would swing. The hit, the hi hat would swing. Roger Lynn kind of got back into this game uh, of sampling drum machine with the MPC. He designed it for Akai, but he designed the swing function so that you could adjust it for each individual sound that you programmed. So you could make some things non-quantized. You could make other things quantized. You could make some things straight and something slightly swung and some things very swung. And then he added shift timing, which actually allowed you to shift the placement of notes by a few ticks in either direction. Incredible, right? Micro control of sound on a drum machine was still very hard to do because it had a little LCD screen, liquid crystal display, and it wasn't, you couldn't see waveforms or anything like that. When James gets this machine, he starts what we might call using or misusing these functions, exaggerating them 
so that hi-hats are swung while other elements are straight. Or in a signature move, he rushes the snare. In other words, he, he programs the snare so that it shows up a little too early, earlier than you expect it, which can make other straight elements sound like they're swung. But in reality, the kick and the snare have changed their relationship to each other. So instead of being even on the grid, they're uneven on the grid. That's what gives the drunken limping thing. When we say that, oh, that swing, that drunken limping, what we're really hearing is a clash between certain elements that are spaced evenly and other elements that are at odds with that evenness. Uh, and that is essentially what shows up on a little beat tape that he starts circulating in 1998 called, that we now call Another Batch. And the reason we call it that is that at the beginning he says, Another Batch from the one they call JD. Yo, yo, check it out now. Another Batch from the one they call JD. What up? Check it out. Get at me. Um, and then it also shows up uh, on the things that he's recording in 1998 with Slum Village. Climax, To You, For You, uh, Get This Money. others uh untitled uh the one he did with pete rock once upon a time fantastic this is for y'all to dance to a slow because it's fantastic it's fantastic All of those feature that sort of rush snare. That is, and that's the thing that like puts JD over the top. Puts that exaggerated, um, conflicted time feel over the top. If you listen to the early stuff, there's no rushed snare. There's no clash, deliberate mechanical clash of machine swing and machine straight. The MPC is what really brings that out. And it is a machine-generated sound. And those shifts are not free-programmed, right? They are, they're, in other words, they're, they're, they're not uh, unquantized. Right. They are programmed uh, as a part of that music, along with a lot of free elements. 
So like once upon a time, the snare, I believe, is on the grid, but the hi-hats are swung, which kind of makes the snare sound a little weird. And then he's playing the kalimba by hand, and the little tines of the kalimba are falling all over the place. Uh, and the bass line is freehand and off the grid. And it's just a mess. It's a beautiful mess. The worst. Yeah, the worst shit. Right. That's when it, that's when it comes out, um, and I have a few theories about, you know, why he started to use this function the way he used it, but thank God he did, and he had, it, it it was a, an act of bravery and self confidence too, because man, the rest of us, unless you were RZA, the rest of us were just trying to make everything fit on the grid, like oh, I can't get this thing to fit, like oh, it's all oh, it sounds whack, oh, yeah, it's, it's not tight enough. Right? That's what we were trying to do. That's what I was trying to do. Again, unless your name was Riza right. and you just didn't give a shit, which in many ways Riza is the father of that errant style. But um, they called his style it, drunk before they called Dilla's style drunk. I remember the right. drunken monkey Riza style. Yeah. Right. And you know what? That's, that's great. Um, but I also think that it wasn't an act of purpose, it was a. It was a, uh, I don't know, a consequence of a very relaxed thought form. Uh, it wasn't, as Rick Rubin says, the grand gesture of the work. Come, boy. Choose life or death. I do think that Riza in some way cleared the way for Dilla to do his work. But, uh, you know, Riza did not, uh, via programming, create these incredibly exaggerated and consistent shifts that we call dilettante. On that uh, specifics with regard to the group. How are we doing on time, by the way? Cool. I guess we good. OK. Yeah. Um, yeah, my questions are long. Your your answers are long, and it's just how it goes. <laughs> sorry, no, hey, listen, no, sorry. You start you started it, buddy, with the shorty long sketch. I did. Thing, so that's the karma. It's great. Know? I'd rather have the long winded, uh, thorough answers than quick hitters, personally. But uh, I was just looking at my list. I'm like, wow, we're an hour in. I got a long list here. But I want to like kind of zero in on what you were describing with regard to uh, to the conflict in the beats and how Dilla was in essence like putting a snare on the grid and the hi-hats not on the grid and freehand on the kick and how that revolutionized the sound. It gave it the sizzle, the, the sort of drunk limping style that defined that era of his work that obviously has been uh, adopted not only by producers, but by 
instrumentalists, improvisational instrumentalists, jazz players. But you, I should acknowledge my my favorite era of music of my lifetime is the Soul Quarians. That that would happen at Electric Lady in those four years. Those records, those players, are really like my DNA as as a fan and as as somebody who's invested in this culture. It, it really is rooted there. Voodoo is like my favorite album of all time. You take us in the studio with Pino, Quest, and D, and how and the moment that Dilla time morphs into instrumentalists adopting the style, and yeah. and it's and, and I know there's like a lot of gray area there. Dilla's not mentioned on the uh, insert on the album yet. He was a domineering presence in the music and was even yeah. in the studio. And I'd love to discuss that stuff too. But what I really want to discuss is the mechanics because I know that's your kink. What happened with Pino and Quest and D that basically made Dilla time uh, live music or instrumental music? Well, it's funny, you know, it's, it's even more interesting now uh, that I realize, you know, I've actually had a chance to speak to Charlie Hunter and, um, you know, here's some more things about those sessions, uh, is that so much of what we are hearing in the live, we hear it as live playing, but it is also shifted digitally. Amazing, right? Yeah. So there was, <laughs> so anyway, um, as Amir tells the story, um, you know, when they were playing together and jamming, they had, they were really doing a lot of mimicking. So they would listen to Marvin Gaye and then play Marvin Gaye tunes. And they would listen to Prince and play Prince tunes. And then they would listen to Slum Village uh, or JD tracks and they try to play like JD programmed. All of those things conspired to create a kind of a, a new and very interesting uh, approach to harmony and rhythm that was going on. And sonics, right, in that studio. Um, in particular... Questlove was really the first drummer to try to recreate that shifted snare and those sort of off-kilter beats. And Questlove talks about, you know, doing it two ways, right? Well, actually, the way Questlove says, he says, like, well, it, you have to think, you have to play in 12-8, but you think 4-4, which is, you know... Like that's how some people get to it, right? Um, but there were also some very key techniques that are less um, heady, right? The first was what he called the mother-son technique, which he says he got from uh, the Curtis Mayfield song, Mother-Son, from Curtis Mayfield's drummer, um, where uh, the drummer would hit the rim of the snare and the skin of the snare in rapid succession. So instead of cock, it would be Knuck, knuck, right? This sort of flam between yep. the two. And he would bring that in a little early, right? So that was one way to sort of get that loose. So in other words, the backbeat is no longer a point in time. It's a span. 
And lots of things can happen in that span. And that span will start earlier than we think. Then the second technique was, um, you know, he would essentially play the snare a little bit. Just he, he tried to lock it to um, lock it to the to the the kick drum that came before it. So instead of gak, he'd be gak, right? Again, bringing the bringing the snare a little earlier. And I, I the, the song that I hear that on is the root. Um, which is also the song that James hears when he comes to the studio. He hears himself in that. Um, and then he goes and recreates it on his drum machine, much to the amazement of D'Angelo and Amir. Charlie Hunter's um, addendum to this is that, you know, he said, I played that stuff, that the bass and guitar parts were played by Charlie Hunter, but that stuff was also shifted. And Amir's playing, live playing, was also sampled and looped, right? To get the sameness, the regularity, which we hear on that record. So it is a real, and, and all of that owes a lot to the genius of D'Angelo. D'Angelo um, had real agency as an artist in all of this stuff. The choices were ultimately his. Um, uh, he chose who to play with. He chose what songs to do. He chose how to execute them and how to mix them. So uh, all of that speaks of this, not only uh, an incredible collaboration between musicians of great agency and talent but also collaboration between man and machine that's never happened quite that way before and as you know when that shit comes out people have all kinds of things to say about it oh, yeah. right what's what's going on and even for us it was like oh my god how do you do that how do you get to that why doesn't everything sound like this that is the so that's actually the soulquarian and neo soul fan ethos why doesn't everything sound right. like this? I want everything to sound like a Stevie Wonder record from the 1970s. I'd, it'd be great if everything sounded like that. <laughs> Poor time. But then yeah. I, I would even acknowledge, much as I love it, it gets homogenized and oft imitated and watered down. And I'm not sure. going to name names, but, you know, the tail end of that era had, you know, it had gotten played out. And a lot of them ran for the hills, like, away from that sound. I mean, listen sure. to Electric Circus, you know. Right. Yeah, James ran from it too. Yeah. He said, I don't ever want to play, I won't ever have a sample of Fender Rhodes if I don't have to again. Wow. Yeah. I wanna it's remarkable that, you know, speaks to again, 
uh, how you carry it and the way people respect and perceive the work you do that you got Charlie Hunter to talk about voodoo. That doesn't happen often. There's a lot of weird stuff with credit and, and, you know, again, I don't want to talk out of turn, but he hasn't spoken publicly often, if at all, maybe back then a couple quotes, yeah. uh, Charlie. Well, I tried to speak to him before the book was written and I couldn't get to him, but he reached out to me after the book. stuff like that that really as difficult as this project was and you know this is also kind of a situation where you're always looking over your shoulder too like oh god did I get anything wrong you know who's going to be pissed off really it's like it's a hard constituency to serve and it's a hard group of folks to write about these people have been hurt they feel taken advantage of they feel ignored and in many cases, that's true. And in many cases, it's not so true. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but I think that's why, that's why it's so necessary to demystify James. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons I call him James in the I book. I love that. There are people who call him friends, you know, and family who call him Dilla. And I mean, you know, that's cool. But it also seems super detached in some ways. Like, it yeah. seems, like, performative. Uh, and, look, everybody's got to deal with the death of their, their friend and colleague in a different way. And, um, you know, the way that I learned as a journalist to honor people was to just tell the truth. Uh, but also not do it sensationally. And I did try really, like in this book, not to be sensational about anything. There's some things that James does in his life, um, you know, treatment of women, things like that, like that, uh, you know, might be shocking to some people, but they're also not him, you know. Uh, they're clearly errant moments uh, in his in his life. And, you know, it's just base, human. He, He's a human. Yeah, he's a human being, right? And every that's the motto for the book, all my books, really. Everybody gets to be human. Everybody yeah. gets to be human. Let, let me ask you, this might be a harder question for you to answer if you don't care to or if it's too touchy, it's understood. But, I mean, we're white guys, we're Jewish guys, um, and this is black music. And you went, you didn't just talk hip-hop. I mean, you went back talking about James's dad, and, and Motown and the history of Detroit, a lot of stuff, you know, that wasn't your lived experience in the community that you weren't necessarily a part of, certainly then. Um, sure. Yet the access and the the level of truth and transparency, the, I mean, the way you told some of the stuff you were just describing with his treatment to women and his, his partners and children and money stuff, whatever, very, again, difficult, oft emotional, topography um 
as an outsider, as a as somebody who wasn't outside, as the kids say, you know, I mean, you were outside, you were in his lab, but I mean, you weren't rolling with the crew when this stuff happened. So you, in essence, are an outsider and you're showing up mm -hmm. in Detroit and not just Detroit. You're in L.A. talking with the Beach Junkies crew and the Stone's Throne crew. And how um, how did you get to be so universally welcomed into the bosom of all things Dilla and then you were able to say well this is Ma Duke's version of the story this is Hausu's version of the story this is Egon's version of the story like very conflicting and I mean shit Hausu's got punched out that's in the book like yeah. yet you maintain these dialogues and these open avenues of communication uh, I'm just curious like is that a modus operandi that you carry in all your projects was that unique to the James book and has there been any blowback from some of those relationships where maybe the the portrayals were unflattering um well, so a lot in there so i'm going to try to take each each in turn um the first thing i do want to say is that it wasn't universally welcomed okay. like um it was difficult uh and I didn't expect to be universally welcomed, and uh, a lot of that trust had to be earned over time. Uh, but the more basic question is like positionality, right? Uh, yeah, I I know who I am and who I'm not, and that's where it all starts, right? So yes, I'm Jewish American, which means I'm white, not black. Uh, I am a New Yorker, not from Detroit. I'm Jewish, not a Christian or a Muslim. I'm upper middle class, not working class, right? So all of those things are huge. And all those things are huge differences. And those differences uh, can matter a lot. Um, and so if that's all I were, I probably wouldn't be writing this book, right? Because there's, no, there's nothing about those positions in and of themselves that qualifies me to do anything with regard to Dilla. For me, it's the other positions that I hold that do, you know, put me in the running to do a project like this or would make me uh, have the gall to, to write about Dilla. The first is that um, I've been essentially uh, in the hip hop business, you know, since the, the golden age, right? Uh, I was one of the first generation or group of people to write about it professionally. I worked in the business from the beginning. Um, you know, I, I was in hip hop prior to any of these people in Detroit, frankly, unless we're talking about awesome Dre. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Like before James, before three, before any of those people, I was writing for the source. I was, you know, uh, you know, record priority, record. Going, visiting, visiting, bringing records to red alert and Chuck chill out and all that shit. Not saying that that makes me some kind of hero. I'm just saying it's a fact. Yeah. Um, James' friends in Los Angeles, they were my friends before they were his friends because I lived out there for 13 years, right? Um, James moved to Los Angeles the same month I moved out. I also worked in the business as a talent executive and a producer. So um, I was actually producing records before James did. Not anywhere near as well, but I did. Uh and um, I also knew these machines intimately because I had worked 
on these machines. Uh, and so I did have a web of relationships and a web of musical understanding. And then, of course, I work with James. Like, I put money into his pocket <laughs> in, in order to work with him. Um, so I, I wasn't a stranger to this. Uh, and then lastly, I, I did want to say that I think essentialism is bullshit. Um, I understand nationalism uh, and why it's important that uh, black folks write about black artists uh, or that uh, at least they have the chance to because I think black folks should be able to write about whoever they damn well please. If, you know, if, if they want to write about French literature, it's all good, right? Um, we don't have enough of that. So... I understand that. That to me is economic and cultural nationalism. Essentialism is something else, right? Essentialism is there's something innate about me or innate about you that prevents us from having some empathetic connection. And it's like, like, yo, dude, like, uh, I grew up with black people. Like, they're my friends and they're my family. And uh, those connections are, doesn't make me african-american it doesn't give me the 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 daily challenges uh that they would face in a white supremacist society but it ain't nothing right (laughs) like those experiences are actually lived experience so yeah um and now i actually have lived experience in detroit it wasn't growing up in detroit but my wife is from detroit i married into a gm family do you know what i mean so like it's not, yeah, you could say, wouldn't it be perfect if somebody in Dilla's inner circle who was there and saw everything could write the book about Jay Dilla? But who's going to do that? Yeah. Because writing is actually a skill. <laughs> you yeah. know, like it, my wife has this saying, she says, uh, everybody's got an idea about who should write a book until it comes time to write it. Well said. You know, writing is writing. Yeah. It's an actual skill. Reporting is a skill. Yeah. And that is also why it's just because you're in a different positionality like than your your uh your subjects, that could also be a good thing. Like it could give you a certain degree of neutrality. Um there's a distance. I love Marine. I think she's great, but there's a certain distance that I need to have from Marine so that I can, you know, talk to people who Marine doesn't necessarily get along with. Um and have to be, and yeah, not everybody's happy with that. But you know what? I didn't bring these people into James' life. You know who did? James. James. Exactly. Right? So, you know, that's ultimately, I think, what folks have to deal with. That uh, I think, yeah, his family, it's their job to be fierce in their defense of James yeah. and their ideas. It's my job to be fair. Uh, is the best way I can. Yeah. Um, and uh, I really, really, really tried not to let anybody get away with anything. You know, I yeah. did. And and one of the, the agreements that I made with Maureen is that I would share with her anything that was said that was sort of in dispute of her version. And a lot of that last month of writing this book was having many conversations with Maureen and getting straightened out from her what you know what her side was and double checking things getting police reports like all the things that 
would help me triangulate, okay, is this fact or is this a dispute that needs to go into the footnotes? Again, another long-winded answer. But, uh, you know, um, it's a thankless job and everybody's got something to say and it's too long. Right. But it might have been thankless in, in the four years that you took creating it. I can imagine, or really can't imagine, uh, but, and I think I might've noted this uh, a few months ago on Twitter that uh, I, there was a period of time where every day there was a new large up Dan Charnas Dilla time tweet post, whatever in the, in the wake of the book release, you know, for the few months and even into the summer and they still pop up every, every so often. So mm-hmm. thankless maybe in the, in the moment, but I feel like the accolades have, have reigned and appropriately so. Um, you know, hard earned, well earned, and and yeah, that's why I, I wanted to do the conversation and have the interview was because I have kind of ridden that wave because I Sean Satara told me the book was about to drop when I did my pod with him, so I reached out to your people through the right. PR. He got me uh, an email address, and that's when they said, "Hey, podcast has to wait." But I got a first edition of the book, and uh, you awesome. know, ever since then I've just kind of been in immersed in the study and also just kind of like studying you that's why i asked about how you move in these situations and how you carry it outwardly inwardly how fortuitous it must have been to to marry uh, a detroit family um Ooh. just because i mean just like finding yourself in Dillo's basement how would you know how would you know that now you you know have uh, family members and a reason to go to detroit besides reporting and and how that might have taken the pressure off in some way Get ready yeah, y'all ready for some live shit? Welcome, welcome to the D, baby. It's all live down here. What you see is all real. Oh, uh, Jay Dilla, about to set it the fuck off. I think you know maybe that's how it, it it started, but it didn't start as reporting. It just and that's what it is. I think it, that the the Detroit part of this for me comes as sort of a genuine love affair. Like it started in love, right? First, it started with fascination with Dilla's beats, but that was one visit. Nine years later, I came to Detroit for love, for love of uh, a woman, and then love of her family. And then love of her place, right? She wanted me to see this place in all of its complexity. And she had a very sophisticated view of what this place was. And, you know, another thing I forgot to mention, we were talking about positionality, uh, because we're talking about Detroit history, but specifically the history of black Detroit and black music in Detroit. Um, It's my discipline. Like, it's my academic discipline. I graduated with a degree in African-American studies. So it's not like, again, this is a, a, a world in which uh, I've had mentorship and training. Uh, and I do believe that under the right circumstances, um, you know, the right people can make contributions. So what I got from my relationship with Wendy and then De- her family and Detroit is a kind of love, like, oh, this is what it is to be from Detroit.
this is why Detroit's so special. This is why Detroit was able to produce what it did. One of the things that Wendy often says that, so I had Frank talk to my Dilla class last night and Frank talked about, you know, growing up in Detroit, the thing that I had different, I'm paraphrasing Frank, um, he said the thing that I had different that a lot, that a lot of other folks from other places don't have is that everyone around us was black, like the mayor, the police, the fire department, like everything was. It was just natural that way. And it's a, a lot of what my wife says, you know, she said my blackness was never questioned in Detroit. Yeah. like it is in other places. And from my lived experience and from my training and from all of what I know, that's a hugely significant thing. Uh, and, and, and in some ways, a great comfort that Detroit provides to its people in that, uh, yeah, you know, it's a black city. Why the fuck not? Right. right? Yeah. Why couldn't this be the, the greatest fucking city in the world? Excuse my French. Yeah. Um, but we are talking about Detroit. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think all of that matters. And, yeah, maybe it does burn some people up that I'm the one to do it. But fuck it. Yeah, it's got to be done. And no one else had done it. Um, and, and with regard to the Detroit side of things, I just wanted to note that your examination of the historical, sociological, economical, cultural, artistic history of Detroit before James was even a thing was so crucial to understanding like where he came from and the position he was in to embark on this versus just kind of dropping us in with the basic knowledge of Detroit, much like the way you went all the way back, transcontinental rhythms in Africa, trace them to Europe, their adaptations before they arrived in America helped us understand the, the, the mechanics of the rhythms that you were describing, just like you breaking down the drum machines and the evolution in the drum machines enabled us to better understand. So all that legwork, Detroit, the rhythms, the drum machines was essential. So uh, I'm grateful that you went that deep with that stuff. Um, I know we've been going long. I got two uh, listener questions sure. from my audience, if that's cool. Yeah. Um, I just put an SOS out to some of my more dedicated listeners and I got a, several, but I'm only going to, uh, use two. One is from a fellow named Robert Van Vranken. He's a podcast producer. He's worked with Sean Sitaro for years. He produces Indoctrination uh, podcast, works with Open Mic. Uh, Robert asks, uh, have you found that translating dilatime into, in essence, traditional music theory terminologies has or will allow the, quote, gatekeepers, like, say, a Wynton Marsalis, to better understand and impart the importance of Dilla time rhythms. Basically, by you giving it verbiage and terminology, do you think that that will better assist gatekeepers, professors, people trying to teach the hiatus coyotes of the world what this is? I hope so. I think it's a great question. Um, I do hope so. Uh, and shout out to Jeff Peretz, my colleague at uh, the Clive Davis Institute, who really gave uh, the book its grid language. Um, you know, the idea of using instead of music notation to teach rhythm to use grids, which is how he does it normally. So he's actually one of the most advanced teachers of um, music theory for in the popular music context because he's able to do it in simple ways. And then, of course, 
once I started working with his grids, I realized, oh, the map, <laughs> the map, that's a polyrhythm. You know, it's a, it's a conflicted polyrhythm. I can teach the music theory using the map. So brilliant. That's yeah. Well, thanks. That, well, that, that's again. So shout out to Jeff. Um, you know, I, I, I hope so. I hope that it does give folks a way to see it, see what they're hearing, to see what they're hearing. And I, the, I'm most um, gratified that like when Questlove read it, he's like, oh, like I don't have to, I don't have to explain this shit to people anymore. You can just buy him the book. And I listen, because there's all, oh, you were talking about if anybody else could have done it, right? Yeah. It, it ha- ha- had to have been Amir, or would have yeah. had to have been him, yeah. um, you know, uh, because he does, you know, talk about lived experience. Right. Yeah. And that walks me right into my, my final question from uh, Andrew O'Brien. I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, when we're talking about the gatekeepers and Wynton Marcellus and the dilatime terminology, a great example of that not happening yet is the scene with Hiatus Coyote where their professors at school are trying to reconcile the quote, it's offbeat versus yeah. uh, their intentional playing in dilatime in that sort of embryonic way. So yeah. I understand where Robert was coming from with asking, like, maybe that doesn't happen on the on this side of the book, if enough professors yeah. and teachers have. But the last yeah. question, you brought up Quest. Um, man, I've been a fan. I'm from Philly or Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So Jerseydelphia. And I, oh, word. Yeah, yeah. It's my hometown. Cherry Hill, Voorhees. Yeah. Class of 96, that. Cherry Hill East. You got it. And uh, and basically, I, you know, I've been a fan of the Roots since I saw them playing outside on South Street when I was like, you know, taking the train to go get a Jim's cheesesteak when I was in middle school. So I, I, and then we go through all the way through OK Player way before any of the stuff he's known for now. So Andrew O'Brien, my editor at Live for Live Music, also a listener, said, you got to ask about the film. I saved it for the end in case you didn't have a lot to say. But what, if anything, can you tell us about the planned documentary with Joseph Patel and Questlove? Sure. Well, you know, the, the, the big thing is that, or the interesting thing is that this actually, this book started in tandem with that documentary. Um, in 2018, you know, when I first started to write the proposal for this book, I was already shooting film. Uh, and, and Amir, you know, God bless him, you know, was so helpful and wanted to partner up. And I remain grateful for that. This is before Summer of Soul. Um, what happened was I quickly realized, uh, you know, like within a year's time that the getting the rights to do something like this were complicated and more complicated than I had been led to believe. Uh, and that was also part of, you know, what ended up in chapter 13 of the book. Um, and but also that there were other players out there. The hip hop evolution folks were doing wanted to do a Dilla Doc and like. You know, and then Frank, you know, was one of the people helping them out. And I never want to be on the other side of anything from Frank, you know, like Frank's <laughs> his boy, right? So, like, I said, you know what? Let me just write this damn book. And I'll put the footage aside. And maybe when the book is done, I can think about it. But I just wasn't going to be able to be sane and do a good job on the book while trying to do a documentary. Because there is two very different things. So... 
just before pandemic, I bumped into Joseph Patel, who's an old friend of mine from back when I think Joseph was still in college, uh, you know, and I was promoting Baby Got Back <laughs> at the Gavin Convention <laughs> in 1992. Um, Joseph said, hey, you know, I heard you're working on this Dilla book. And I'm literally tapping away on my laptop as he's saying it. Like, yeah, I am right here. He says, well, you know, I'm working with Amir on this documentary called Summer of Soul. Maybe, you know, when you're done with the book, we can all talk. I said, sure. And then by the time that happened, uh, the Hip Hop Evolution people had come to Joseph. So Joseph brought us all together to work on this thing. And the most important thing was that if we did it, we wanted to secure not just the, like the blessing of the estate, but to make sure that all four of Dilla's heirs felt somewhat enfranchised by this uh, endeavor. So it took us a while to work that out with the estate, but we did. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're uh, on, on that journey uh, to, to making this film. And the important thing was that we do it the right way by the, by the air, by the way, you know, by the people who Dilla himself named as the people he wanted to, uh, you know, inherit his legacy. It's fantastic. We say fantastic. We say huh? What? You know? It's that. Hey yeah. This is for y'all to dance to a song. Cause it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Well, well stated as usual, man. And and I think to bring it full circle, you spend a, a great part of the book uh, talking about Dilla being smothered in brotherhood. I, I just love that turn of phrase, even though it's so sad. From mm. from the Uma to the Solquarians, um, mm. changing his name, all that. And here we are discussing New York Times bestseller, 400-page magnum opus book, uh, and now a documentary being made about his life. So in his afterlife, he has been feted, anointed, deified, the the polar opposite of smothered in brotherhood. He has been raised up to, right. to borrow a phrase and uh, but done so in a way with such class, such dignity, empathy, truth, yeah. transparency. And so when when you put people like you're talking about, a Joseph Patel, who, by the way, one of the best podcast guests of all time, that dude can talk fishbone. He can talk Nirvana. He can talk hip hop. I, he's Joseph Patel is on my get list one day. But uh, and then, oh, of we, course, we could do that. We can do that, bro. We oh. can get him. Um, no, he really is. He is. Um, I don't know. Cultural, cultural, culture personified. Yeah. He just, he's you know, so well read and well versed in all the things. And then, of course, Amir. Yeah, I was in tears as soon as I saw, I, we went here at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, historic theater. The first time I'd been in a theater during the, since the pandemic, mm. when Summer of Soul debuted and just the first five minutes, Stevie on drums on the big screen, I was just crying, just bawling, happiness, elation, all that. And and yeah. Amir just has a, a way to get you in the feels. He's, he's a, another cultural anthropologist. So the three of you together, I could not think of any better dream team 
to bring this to fruition. So please keep us posted and I, I will cool. be a cheerleader along the way uh, and to the best of my abilities. Well, I'll come back when, when there's more to say, I'll, I'll, I'll come back if you'll have me. Oh, it would be an honor. And a I mean, we didn't even touch the big payback or deaf American or, you know, <laughs> Steve Plotnicki, none of that. You know, okay. Steve, Steve's kid, uh, one of his twin sons, Gideon, works with me at Live for Live Music. So get out. Yeah. Do you remember the twins, Noah and Gideon Plotnicki? I don't. I may have been before. Yeah. The twins. How old are how old? They're are they like they? early 30s. Yeah, I'm 44. I've got about 10, 12 years on them. Yeah, I think uh, I think maybe they came after my time. You know, it's so funny because Corey and Steve, Steve were so old to me. When I, <laughs> but, like they were really like much younger than I am right now yeah. when I first met them. Uh, but, yeah. you know, listen. Next time. Uh, thank God for the both of them. Next time. I would love to have you back when whenever the stars align. But this was absolute joy. I never dreamt that we would go this long and I would get this much. And like I said, with at risk of sounding like a super fan, like you are a North star to me and a number of my peers in the music writing community. Thank you for, for leading by example and blessing us with all this. So grateful. Thanks, bro. Really. I, I feel, I feel the love. I really appreciate it. I, I do think, you know, you, you, um, you are one of the, the more closer reads of this book. And that makes, that makes me feel really good because you know, I worked hard on it. I wanted people to read yeah. it. I will read it again and again and continue to buy it for friends. It's the best gift, too. Thanks, man. Thank you. Yes, indeedy. Wow, that was amazing and rewarding and fulfilling and illuminating. Even though I've heard him on numerous podcasts and read the book a couple times and and am at least an intermediate dillophile, I still gleaned quite a bit from that conversation. I hope the listeners did as well. Large up and deep bow to Professor Dan Charnas, his other books, and work in hip-hop and it just we got so much more ground to cover luckily he said he'd come back so i look forward to that please you know dilla time is such a great gift this holiday season if you got a family member a friend a partner somebody at work that's into hip-hop that's into dilla that's into musicology i mean this is a holy grail and i mean that so www.dillatimebook.com get it wherever books are sold um i want to let y'all know that i'm throwing up funkit's dilla time mixtape in the in the show notes there'll be a link to a soundcloud my man randy at funkit one of my partners in this music media thing uh, he made a unique mixtape for the book release that I embedded in my feature article back in February. So I'm going to drop that in the show notes for everybody who wants to listen. 
to a little bit of what we just talked about. It was really hard to choose what to play at this time. Like we always do about this time, the Vibe Junkie Jam. Uh, This podcast is already hella long. I want to play a bunch of cuts, Dilla cuts, covers of Dilla. I have so many ideas and options and I just, the the pod would be three hours long. Now, I didn't ask Dan what his go-to cut is because I already knew. Um, so I'm going to defer to him. Anytime, and, and basically I'd say three out of four pods, ask him, what's your favorite tune? What's your favorite Jay Dilla song? And he's got a number just like myself. But he always comes back to one in particular. It's a remix of Obligato by brother Jack McDuff. Super cool situation where Dilla went into the vaults and got the original recordings and remixed this uh, classic funk jazz, what was it called? Like jazz funk rare groove. Uh, It was already used once in a Tribe Called Quest song, I believe. But nonetheless, as he's wont to do, or was, He really reinvented this song in a magical way, but also still and somewhat true to uh, the roots of the composition and the vision of the great organist brother Jack McDuff. Highly recommend hitting his vault because he's got a lot of funky deep cuts too. Uh, And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play that song. It makes it an easier choice because I was like debating, do I play As Serious As Your Life, the Fortet remix? Do I play E equals MC squared? I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg for me. So I encourage y'all to seek those songs out and hit me up. I actually have a 33-hour Jay Dilla musical anthology uh it's six six and a half hour soundcloud links that mr v who i know from okay player the lesson he posted as araqual a-r-a-q-a-q-u-a-l and he's out there in australia and he curated this 33 hour uh, basically everything dilla ever did including interviews so I'll drop that in the show notes too. So you get the Randy Funkit mixtape for Dilla time. And you'll get Mr. V's Confessions of a Curly Mind is the name of the series. And it's a six-part Jay Dilla musical anthology. So you can listen to all the music there. And therefore, I can only have to play Obligato, Brother Jack McDuff, remix by the late, great, James DeWitt Yancey. You know him as JD or J Dilla. Thank you, Dan Charnas. And we'll just have to sign off. Goodbye, job bless. And we'll see you next time. Yes, indeedy.